Oh, you're back. Hello. Is, is Ella not back yet? You know what that means. It's the Tom, Tom, Tom and Caroline show. Tom. That's right. Today, all the all this episode, we're giving away one Tom to every listener in the audience. This is an illegal podcast. Shut this podcast <laughs> down. <laughs> oh, fuck. Smoke bomb. Do you have a, do you have a license <laughs> for that podcast? Caroline, book it. Go, go, go. With my mouth full of sausage rollers, I ran <laughs> over as well. <laughs> so I could tell the joke. <laughs> Welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the show where we learn anything and everything interesting. Today, we're going to cover a science topic and we're going to explore a miscellaneous topic. So good. It's all so good. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the last proper episode. It's the last proper episode of the year. Oh, it is. And it feels like it. This is a half episode, right? We get we get half vacation day for please. please. <laughs> yeah. My name's Ella. I'm covering the main topic today, which will be the discovery of super heavy elements. Oh, oh shit. Something which I've hinted at to Caroline yeah. and Tom behind the scenes for some time, but finally decided to cover. I feel like this is also this is a thing we've like I think the scientific naming we like briefly touched on it and it was just like this is a whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But it's also like, first of all, it's a great word. Oh Second my goodness, of all, yeah. um, I don't think I know a goddamn thing about this. This is what uh, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm so excited to hear what you've got for us today, Ella. I, I feel like I said that with not enough enthusiasm, but I cannot express to you how interesting and cool this topic actually oh, is. Amazing. Oh, amazing. My name's Tom, and today's miscellaneous topic is uh, another great end of year one. It's about everyone's favorite holiday coming up. Public Domain Day. I I didn't know that was a thing. I love giving gifts of public domains on Public Domain Day. (laughs) I mean, you joke, Caroline, but I I do think that there are actually gifts for all of us and things to celebrate. uh, And perhaps the greatest gift of all, drama. Oh, okay. (laughs) Wait, has Public Domain Day happened already this year or is it coming up? Oh, it's coming up. Well, it's happened last year. It's the start of every year. So there will be... It'll give you some things to watch out for, which will be very fun. Hey, folks, just a quick editor's note. Uh, you may have noticed there's a question missing this episode. Uh, after we recorded, listening back to the episode, Caroline discussed with us that they wanted to rework their question. Uh, as y'all have heard before, the question, more than any other topic, sometimes uh, gets away from us. And we just ended up getting lost in the sauce, I think. So we're sorry we couldn't fix or get a new question in for this episode but we just always want to make sure that what we put out is solid and something we're happy with. So thanks y'all. Today's main topic is super heavy elements or more specifically the discovery of super heavy elements. It is, I'm going to tell you just part of a very long and incredible story. Hell yeah. The international centuries long race to discover these elements. Centuries. Wow. Wow. Guess, yeah, really century is where we're focusing, but it did start technically like 200 years before I really get into it. Holy moly. I got this story and I'm basically interpreting this story from a book called Super Heavy uh, by science journalist Kit Chapman. 
I'm going to basically condense what I've learned from this book, or at least the start of it. I would highly recommend reading this even after listening, because there's so much more that I don't get into. Um, a lot more kind of personal stuff where I'm more focusing on the science in a lot of places. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Do they get into some super heavy topics? Hey. Oh, <laughs> I will talk a lot about the people, though, as we go through. Ooh, okay. And they're kind of the biggest and part of the most exciting part of this. But also the science is fun, too. It's going to feel like you're in school again. Because <laughs> some of this is so basic and I could not remember any of it. Honestly, can I be completely honest? I love when we do stuff where it is just a thing that I learned in school, but because I'm learning it here, I like actually learn it. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not uh, seven in the morning and I have like three other tests I have to worry about and, and I can ask a dumb question. <laughs> yeah. On that point, we're going to start with a quick science lesson about something you may remember from school, the periodic table. Woo! Yay! So the framework for the periodic table was created by a Russian chemist called Dmitry Mendeleev in 1869. Mm -hmm. So Mendeleev ordered the elements by their relative atomic mass, which is not what they're ordered by anymore. He also sorted them into columns with similar properties. So i.e. Mm -hmm. column 2A or alkaline earth metals, which has beryllium, magnesium, calcium, etc. They are all shiny, silvery, white, somewhat reactive metals. The noble gases are on, on the one side, right? Yeah, they're all sorted in their own. They all have similar properties. They're actually similar due to similar electron configurations around mm -hmm. the atom. Ah. Although Mendeleev wouldn't have known this mm -hmm. because... The electron wasn't discovered until 1897. Holy piss. Isn't that wild? That's yeah. so cool. And actually, when it was discovered, Mendeleev didn't like the idea of electrons anyway. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it doesn't matter that he didn't like it. It's true. Science doesn't care about your feelings, Mendeleev. Electrons yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are real. And, and, and sorry, to clarify now... These days, the periodic table is ordered by the number of protons, right? Because that determines what an element is, right? Yeah, Mendeleev ordered them by their atomic weight or relative atomic mass, which... Actually, you know what? That makes more sense because he probably couldn't count the protons. No, he couldn't. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And funnily enough, relative atomic mass actually is related to protons and neutrons, but right. he also wouldn't have known that, which is quite yeah. interesting. He was a, That was great guesses. Well, they, they, he had ideas which turned out to have underlying atomic meaning to them. Right, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's underlying atomic meaning. So he had this table, this prototype of the table, and he left gaps in the table where the next oh. known element didn't fit the pattern of like yeah. the types of these groups that had similar properties. And they would be filled over the subsequent years. And it wasn't until the early 1900s that the atoms underlying the order of Mendeleev's table was understood um, and it could be reworked into kind of a more suitable order so I'll keep this mm. bit simple we've already kind of touched on it the nucleus or center of an atom is made up of two particles the first one is the proton protons but then Caroline was gonna say the neutrons the neutrons and we'll get to that which makes Ella the electron <laughs> <laughs> the the most useless part <laughs> You said it. <laughs> in the context of this story, the most useless part, certainly not, you know, for not all, in of, general. all of creation. Well, no, no, you're only useless in the context of this story. <laughs> so protons were first identified by Ernest Rutherford in 1917. Hydrogen has one proton. It is therefore designated with an atomic number of one on the periodic table. Helium has two <laughs> protons, so it's two. Lithium has three, so it's three, and so on and so forth. Protons are positively charged, so they repel each other. 
So why does the nucleus stay together? Why does it not just rip itself apart? Caroline. I don't know if I've ever asked myself that question. You said it before. Oh, the other, the, the neutrons. It's neutrons. They have... Wait, what? Yeah, what? So it gets a bit complicated here, but there okay. is basically this fundamental force that at short distances overcomes the electromagnetic repulsion oh. and holds everything in the nucleus together. It's called the strong force or strong interaction sometimes. Oh, oh, yes. And it's actually one of four fundamental forces of nature, along with gravity and electromagnetism. Damn. Right. And something Caroline mentioned before, the neutrons are also needed to add to this strong force and hold the nucleus together. Because they don't oh. have any charge, oh. they can yeah, contribute yeah, yeah. to the nucleus. Oh and add more strong force without adding to any of the electromagnetic repulsion that's, to vastly oversimplify it. That's amazing. So like, because I feel like in, in, in high school, we learned that like they're neutral, but it's the fact that they're like a neutral glue. And in the book, Kit Chapman describes it as a kind of nuclear juggling act because as the atomic number increases, the more neutrons are needed to keep the atom together. And eventually, oh. even this will no longer work. The nucleus will still become unstable. Oh. The reason carbon-12 is because there's six protons and six neutrons, right? Right. And that's why these numbers don't remain even as you go up. You get, you get more neutrons as your proton number increases. Ah. But eventually this doesn't work anymore and the, nu the nucleus will become unstable and particles will be ejected and that's radiation. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, so that's why often heavier elements tend to be more radioactive. That's not always the case. And when an atom contains different numbers of neutrons from what is normal, it's called an isotope. Mm -hmm. So for example, right. carbon mm -hmm. has six protons and six neutrons. Normally carbon 13 has seven neutrons. That's all we need to know for now. Okay, perfect. You good? Also, the, the mass doesn't change based on the electrons because they are basically massless. Yes. So the modern periodic table, as we said, is ordered based on atomic number, the number of protons. Um, and there are 118 elements known to date in the modern periodic Eight. table. Five of these occur very rarely on Earth. And as far as we're aware, another 24 do not occur naturally on Earth at all. Oh, wow. Whoa, whoa. Most of these are super heavy elements or elements with an atomic number greater than 103. Okay. They have been created by humans through various atomic hijinks, as Chapman describes it. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> we're going to talk about these hijinks, or at least some of them. Starting <laughs> in the early 1900s with Italian scientist Enrico Fermi. If you've heard of Enrico Fermi... I was going to say, isn't it the, the Fermi paradox? You may right? be familiar with the Fermi paradox, Ooh, which okay. is the discrepancy between the lack of conclusive evidence of advanced alien life, despite the apparently high likelihood of its existence. Oh, uh, okay. It's basically, why no aliens? Fermi didn't have anything, have anything to do with this field. He was just jokingly speculated on it one day. Oh. <laughs> oh! I have it. <laughs> I would have totally guessed he was like a, an astronomer. That's yeah. so funny. <laughs> no, he's not. Um, you may also know him from the Fermi problem, which is a problem designed to teach the approximation of extreme scientific calculations. For example, Fermi's most well-known that he used in lectures was how many piano tuners are there in Chicago? Can you use logic to kind of make what? a good estimate? <laughs> oh. What? Is yeah. this like a, like a logic riddle to, it to basically, test yeah, your brain? With a potentially real answer. According to Fermi, about 150 piano tuners live in 
Chicago. <laughs> but we're not here for that. We're here for the elements. That's the mist, baby. We're talking about, we're interviewing each piano tuner. I mean, I love that. Fermi was an exceptional man. He was a professor by age 24. And wow. Holy shit. Whoa. In 1934, he had this research group at the University of Rome Physics Institute. But he had very little experience with nuclear physics at the time. And his research group had basically no money. So now this is in the era of Marie Curie, who, as we know from Caroline's topic, carried a vial of radium around in her pocket. Uh-huh. And she was battling cancer due to radiation around this time. So Fermi's group knew about the dangers of radiation, but without the money to do anything to protect themselves, they apparently just simply ran to the end of hallways during experiments to avoid radiation. <gasps> Oh. Wow. <laughs> oh, no. You're talking about like the same precautions I take when like taking out especially smelly trash are the precautions that they took with like nuclear elements where I'm, where I'm like, hold it far away yeah. and run really fast. <laughs> and like, yeah. like leave a door open so I can run quickly to the trash, <laughs> to the dumpster outside. Yeah, basically. Oh my God. Oh. And despite this, they were still trying to discover a new element. And Fermi was interested in doing this using something called beta radiation. So a bit more juicy science here. Yay. So some years earlier, Ernest Rutherford, our previously mentioned proton finder, discovered mm -hmm. something called alpha and beta radiation. So alpha radiation is when a particle of two protons and two neutrons, which is the nucleus of a helium atom, basically, yep. are emitted from the nucleus. This causes an element to drop two places down the periodic table because it's losing two protons. So for example, element 19 thorium into element 88 radium. Got it. Alpha radiation. Now previously in France, Irene Joliot-Curie, Marie Curie's daughter, had shown that if you bombard element 13, aluminium or aluminum, <laughs> with an alpha particle, two protons, two neutrons, you can turn it into another element okay you can move it up from oh, this one element okay. into another gotcha okay right. so you have a way to potentially make new elements here oh. but one slight problem these elements have to be smashed together at incredibly high speeds to overcome the repulsion between the nuclei and that requires a stunning amount of energy i.e a particle accelerator oh Right, because otherwise mixing elements would happen all the yeah. time, right? Where you, uh -huh, you, you just uh -huh. clap your hand really hard. And it's like, Whoa. Boom, boom, boom. you just you're just like holding some tin foil and like a bit of gold, and you're just smashing yeah. them together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I made uranium. <laughs> Whoopsies. But it is it is kind of when you said like this element can like eject a helium and become a lower element there is a part of my brain that's like oh i have to like readjust how i'm thinking about elements a yeah, little bit, right yeah, where totally. it's like they're not fixed they are kind yeah. of which is why and i i love being like oh that's why it's called nuclear physics because we're talking about the nucleus oh, oh my, my god, god yeah. you have no idea <laughs> i was almost all the way through writing this script i was talking to my housemate yono uh -huh. who is a, who did <laughs> physics and he was like and I said something, he was like, yeah, that's why it's called nuclear <laughs> physics. And I was like, oh, fucking hell, I'm an idiot. Wow. <laughs> it is, but it's real that like that feeling is because you hear it so early on when 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 you first learn it, you, the teachers have to be like we can't get into it right now like, yeah, like yeah. right now i just need you guys to understand what the periodic table is like another another time please please, please. <laughs> so when you relearn it it is like god fuck 
Okay. Yes, I'm with you though. I'm yeah, with you. So basically to do this kind of smashing together, you need a particle accelerator, something which the very clearly impoverished Fermi did not have access to. Yeah. So he turned to Rutherford's other discovered radiation, beta radiation. So beta radiation, or rather is beta minus decay more specifically, but let's forget about that. It's where Amazing. a neutron turns into a proton. Right, I don't, uh, I'm not. Oh, I don't know why. What? I'm not. Gonna... I didn't know that was a thing that they okay, could okay, do. Okay, okay. Well, <laughs> there's probably a lot in it. It's, it decays into a proton and it spits out some other particles in the process while it's doing that. Okay. But the important oh. thing is, this form of radiation means there's one more proton in the nucleus, so the element is moving one space further along the periodic table. Right, because it's a proton. Okay. Which, which determines what the element yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. So Fermi supposed it would be easier to just throw neutrons at an element to, <laughs> to destabilize the kind of yeah. nucleus and then yeah, yeah, you yeah. get the neutron to decay into a proton and it would turn into this. It would be yeah. one element for the wrong. And this was easier for him because it's neutron it has no charge and so it's not going to be re repelled like an alpha particle so it doesn't ah, need that okay, energy yeah. to do it honestly the throwing analogy really is helpful because i can see that in my yeah. head I'm <laughs> so with it with a homemade neutron beam fermi bombarded <gasps> elements with neutrons and he found that the heavier elements he was throwing the neutrons at held onto them this is called neutron capture so they moved their way up the table, him and his team, until they made it to the heaviest element. At the time, 92 uranium. And after that experiment, they definitely had something that wasn't uranium. Oh, something. Okay. So they compared the half-life, so the time it takes for the radioactivity of an isotope to fall to half its original value, against the half-life of known elements. Oh. Down okay, to yeah. element 82. That was to see if there was any sign of alpha decay occurring. So 92 turning into 90, into 88, and so on. And there was no sign of alpha decay. So, a new element. And in oh. fact, they found a second new element in the process. <gasps> they had oh. found elements 93 and 94. You can imagine that the discovery of transuranic elements, so elements heavier than uranium, mm -hmm. which had been something thought to be maybe nearly impossible for a long time, it became an yeah. overnight scientific sensation. Yeah. Fermi was a sudden star. <gasps> I love to hear the details of this. It's, it's just so cool because it's like, you imagine when you discover a new element, it's like you shoot the beam and it turns like a new color and then like banners fall and it's like new element, new <laughs> element, when instead it's like, you've done this, it maybe probably looks identical and then you just like weigh it to see if it does this thing yeah. if it like decays and changes mass and then like i'm sure after like tons of like double checking and like confirmation and like double checking the data you're like holy shit it's actually yeah. crazy it's a shame we're not going to get super high up in the periodic table during this section because some of these elements exist for such a small amount of time that there is almost no reproducing them it's just like you just have to trust it's almost <gasps> entirely theoretical wow. yeah but anyway to where we are now in the 1930s Fermi is this overnight sensation and his new elements are too. He was catching even the attention of politicians. Oh, wow. Like Italy's fascist dictator Mussolini. Oh, Ah, uh, yeah. When you okay. said that time period, I was like, I wonder when yeah. we're going to hear some names. <laughs> and that actually plays pretty heavily into this whole story. Oh, shit. But at this specific time, Mussolini was 
putting pressure on Fermi to name one of his new elements Littorio. Okay. After a kind of Roman civil servant called a lictor who okay, carried bad. around a bundle of wooden rods called a fasces, which uh, had obviously <gasps> been appropriated by the fascist movement in Italy. Uh, there, there, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? I can't. I truly just the idea of learning about fascism in in science class. It's like every American teacher being like, "God damn it, they got one on us." <laughs> you just, just you wait, and then we spend millions of dollars to get a new element so we can name it Freedium or something. Yeah. Freedomium. Anyway, thankfully Fermi did not name either of his elements. Well done, Torio. Yeah. Actually, wait, there is an element named Americium, so I, I actually can't joke about Freedomium because we did do that, actually. There is. Actually, there's a lot of elements named after very specific yeah, places in America. Yeah, there's some Berkeley ones. I, which we'll talk yeah. about, kind of. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, <laughs> anyway, ignoring that, Fermi just carried on working on confirming that he'd actually made these elements. Cool. He found some other really amazing stuff during this time, which is was essential to nuclear physics in the future. So he discovered that if you put something in the way of the neutron beam, like he used paraffin wax at first, Ooh. it reduces the speed oh. of the neutrons and the re you get much better results. Oh, wow. God, that's wild. And it's, it's actually the hydrogen, he realized, hydrogen atoms in the paraffin wax that were slowing down the neutrons. So he turned to an even oh. better hydrogen source for slowing them, water. Right. Um, and using water to slow a neutron beam was actually almost as an amazing discovery as finding these new elements. And very quickly, many nuclear physics Holy labs around shit. the world started using this technique so they could create the next new element. Oh, wow. This is, this is fucking It's magic. amazing. Yeah. So but cool. to take a sudden and jarring turn, meanwhile, in 1938 in Italy, Mussolini decrees Jews do not belong to the Italian race. This is an important point. Uh-huh. Laura Fermi, Enrico Fermi's wife, was Jewish. Mm. So later that year, a couple of very important things happened in very rapid succession. So on November 9th in 1938 in Germany, a wave of horrific violence against Jewish people had taken place in what would become known as Kristallnacht. Mm -hmm. On November 10th, the next day, announcements came in Italy that anti-Semitic laws like excluding Jewish children from schools and passport conversations were being introduced across the country. Later that same day, on November 10th, 1938, Fermi received a call from the Swedish Academy of Sciences saying he had won the Nobel Prize for his demonstrations of the existence of new radioactive elements produced by neutron irradiation and for his related discovery of nuclear reactions brought about by slow neutrons. That is quite a day. <laughs> so shortly after this, Laura Enrico Fermi went to Stockholm to collect his medal and from there immediately fled to the United States because of the state of Italy. <gasps> wow. Wow. He's received a Nobel Prize for discovering new elements. He's fled Italy with his wife to the USA and it was shortly after arriving in the US that Fermi learnt that he had been wrong and he had not <gasps> discovered any new elements at no. all. No. Oh, shit. Okay. Uh, no take backsies. No take backsies <laughs> on the bell. <laughs> That's mine. Hey, who did the cool water star? <laughs> I don't know if they um, retracted Re the Nobel retracted Prize. Ooh. Was Fermi's Nobel Prize 
They've never been formally, never been formally retracted. I mean, clearly he did a lot of work in this and then also had the like the, the water thing, right? Yeah. So it's not like... Yeah, the neutron beam slowing was pretty exceptional. It's also worth saying that although he did not make new elements, he did do something. He just hadn't realized at the time uh -huh. what it was. Huh? <laughs> a German physicist called Otto Hahn soon discovered what Fermi had actually done. So in trying to repeat Fermi's experiments to make elements 94 and 5, he found he just couldn't create them. If you remember when they were checking for the new elements, they were looking at the half-lives yeah. to see if they had alpha decay, but they stopped at element 83. Mm -hmm. But Otto Hahn continued looking further down and discovered the presence of element 53, barium, something which could only be present if the atom had split. <gasps> Fermi hadn't created a new element. He had made an cool. atom explode which is also Whoa. known as nuclear fission. fission oh my goodness so so basically he just took a sharpie and then crossed out the nobel and wrote something else yeah. like, this, is just, this is actually for fission that's that's big that's wild <laughs> it's, yeah it's insanely huge and here's why so when a nucleus breaks apart like this it releases a small amount of energy yeah. if you have a lot of atoms undergoing fission at once you get a lot of energy released heat to be specific and you can use that heat for example heat generated by the fission of uranium heats water which produces steam which drives turbine generators to generate electricity nuclear energy i've heard of that wow so nuclear energy what a great and amazing thing or you can use it more destructively for example, oh, lots and lots of no. atoms undergoing fission almost simultaneously can generate a powerful explosion. No! Ella, I mean, it's redundant. Everyone here this past summer saw Barbie, so we know what happens. <laughs> <laughs> a nuclear bomb. And Fermi did go on to work on the Manhattan Project. Oh, but shit. that is not a topic for now. <laughs> was he in Oppenheimer? He was in Oppenheimer. I, <laughs> I haven't seen by? it, but I know he was. There's a big team of nuclear physicists who worked on making new elements that were involved in the Manhattan Project in a kind of peripheral way, right. which we will actually touch on more. This is not where I was expecting this story to go at all. Danny DeFerrari. Nice job. Okay. Nice. <laughs> we're not here to talk about the Manhattan Project, or at least not in very much detail, because we're talking about elements. So right now... We move from Fermi, who is in Los Alamos in New Mexico, to the radiation lab at the University of California, Berkeley. Woo! Unlike Fermi's lab in Italy, where they had, you know, homemade Geiger counters and homemade neutron beams, the Berkeley Radiation Lab had a lot of money. Yeah. And they spent it on Whoa. the best equipment. So it was here that the first cyclotron was constructed by someone called Ernest Lawrence. This is a type of particle accelerator where it, it uses magnets to propel a beam of charged particles in a circular path. And then the particles are like shot at a target like uranium to cause fission. Mm -hmm. This is a uh, machine is like very different from how you might think of particle accelerators today, like the Large Hadron Collider, which is 27 mm -hmm. kilometers in circumference. Yeah. This first cyclotron was about 4.5 inches in diameter. Oh. Oh. <laughs> that is it. not how small I was expecting it to be. A little tabletop one. Yeah, he's just yeah, a little they guy. Did, well, it was a big, big machine, the actual um, part that did the... Oh, oh but, but the actual distance it travels is only a few inches. Okay. Yeah, it was smaller. But Ernest Lawrence did make more cyclotrons that got bigger over time, but nothing like what we see now. Yeah. Can you imagine? I just love the idea of them getting to see the Large Hadron Collider. <laughs> oh. Like, holy fuck, like you guys yeah. did it. Like you made a huge... Huge one. 
So one of Fermi's former lab members, actually, someone called Emilio Sergei, did use this cyclotron just to discover a new element. And uh, not one of the super heavies, but uh, 43 technetium, which was had been a gap in the periodic table at the time. Oh, oh, cool. Wild. And following the news of Fermi's mistaken elements, it was a very good opportunity to try and actually discover the real oh. 94 and 95. So the uh, two guys, Edwin McMillan and Philip Abelson, used the cyclotron and the ideas of beta decay to discover the real element 93. That I know that sounds very underwhelming, but they did it. <laughs> they just did it. They Yay! used the same. <laughs> Sometimes science is like that. I mean, it took they a long time. I'm sure. Um, and I'm a lot sure. of work, but it really required very precise machinery or rather powerful machinery. Mm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so they found element 93 there. They found the real one and they named it after the planet that comes after Uranus. Any guesses on the name? Neptunium? It's Neptunium, baby. Ah, oh, cute. Because Uranium, Neptunium. Great. I'm there sorry. I'm sorry. Is Uranium named after Uranus? Yeah. Oh, oh. This is I hate like this. I hate up this. there with I hate... learning why we call it nuclear physics. Yeah. <laughs> like <that>. uh... <laughs> so these genuinely quite incredibly amazing findings were published in Physical Review in 1940. And they got absolutely no attention whatsoever. I was about to ask if they got Nobel Award Nobel? or anything. Oh, no, Nothing? they didn't get a Nobel Prize. But they also got no attention from anyone in the scientific community at all. What? Is this because of the war? Yeah, not because oh, not because they okay. weren't good, but because no one in America wanted to draw attention to something that might be useful to the Germans oh, in World no. War II. Oh. <gasps> wow. And this is pretty consistent throughout World War II and any of these hunts. Macmillan keeps on working, hunting for the next element, 94 this time, until the USA officially joined the war. And Macmillan is sent to work on radar detection as part of the war effort. Oh, gosh. But someone else is there to step in. A chemist who had accidentally stumbled into nuclear physics after the radiation laboratory team had asked him, just the first chemist they saw, to help separate <laughs> out different elements in solution. Oh, wow. That man was 28-year-old Glenn Seaborg, who would no take over the radiation way. lab at Berkeley and over the next 11 years go on to f- discover the f- next five super heavy elements. Oh, wow. And th- that's the guy that Seaborgium is named after. Seaborgium, yeah. From the we, we mentioned this briefly in the scientific naming episode, and I just had to like hand wave who he was and how important he was. So this, this is great. I love that we get to hear these stories now. So Seaborg takes over. He's young, but he's very, very smart and ambitious and during world war ii knowing that their discovery could be used in atomic bombs seaborg and his team have to do everything in secret they carry out much of their work at night for example oh wow and so they're working on finding element 94 Um, and for this uranium is being bombarded with deuterons which is the nucleus of deuterium which is an isotope of hydrogen with an extra neutron so basically that's okay one proton and one neutron we're just mixing and matching what we're smashing yeah but it's yeah. like it's like the hydraulic press youtube channel you know that is everything <laughs> this entire almost all of these discoveries are just changing what you're smashing together and maybe slightly how you're doing it in another life they would be crashing monster truck cars but instead they found an academic purpose for this yeah. <laughs> So you're, they're throwing these deuterons, one proton and one neutron at uranium. And this makes neptunium. But then you also have this extra neutron. Beta decays into the next element, 94, which is named, any guesses? I know you can get it. Oh, blu- oh plutonium. What the fuck? <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. Oh. 
that's nice. I like that. I hate, I hate that this keeps happening. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I thought I was smart. <laughs> I literally have talked about Seaborgium and I didn't fucking make the connection with Pluto. <laughs> Oh, Christ. So obviously I'm telling a very condensed version of this story, but it's, it is very difficult to make transuranic elements. You know, it takes months or years of firing atoms at each other, a tiny, impossibly tiny target at incredibly high speeds <laughs> and hoping that something takes. It's also very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. mm. So what they calculated was that they needed 1.2 kilograms of uranium to make one microgram a thousandth of a gram oh, of neptunium which whoa, would de decay wow. into plutonium so plutonium was the rarest and most expensive element on earth at the time much much more expensive than gold for example wow yeah they should have explained this in back to the future because that would have made the urgency a lot clearer he was just like oh this is super rare but if i had known that you need 120 kilograms of uranium to <laughs> make one microgram i would have been like oh fuck marty you gotta really yeah, uh, really be careful this. with this shit <laughs> yeah holy fuck <laughs> marty quick before we save your kids i gotta teach you about the super heavy elements first you sound like rick yeah it's based off of that is it actually that's what rick and morty's based <laughs> off of yeah uh, that makes so much sense okay but anyway so we have this incre incredibly expensive rare thing but when seaborg realized that plutonium's fission rate was 1.7 times greater than uranium it became clear to him that that's what should be used in a nuclear bomb because it was much better at being a nuclear bomb. <laughs> oh, oh, great. Oh, oh dear. Oh no. But to do that, they, you know, you're getting a microgram, but you need a lot to make a nuclear bomb. So you would need to produce a lot of it regardless of cost. But when it took, you know, months to make this microgram of plutonium, it was going to require quite a lot of collective genius to figure out how to produce it on an industrial scale. And also, hopefully, mm -hmm. discover new elements along the way. So, Seaborg assembled the Avengers of nuclear physics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Atom Exploder Fermi is back. Cyclotron hey. Lawrence joins the team. <laughs> and... <laughs> And radioactive Gary. He's just, been, he's just a little too radioactive, but we bring him along. And I, I kind of see this as like a Spider-Man edition where you get like the teenager who doesn't have any experience. Seaborg re recruits this lab technician who made Geiger counters for the, for the Berkeley lab. <laughs> uh, this guy called Al Giorso. Now, Giorso would go on to discover the next 12 elements. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of them. This includes using nuclear fusion, flying jet planes through a mushroom cloud, and the race oh heating up as competition comes in the form of the USSR. But that will all be in part two sometime <gasps> next year. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Holy shit. No big outro for this oh, because there's wow. so much more of this story to tell. I, I'm not going to take the piss here. I'm not going to use this for all of my main topics for the next <laughs> 10 for topics. For the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah just every single element. <laughs> but sometimes I'll just throw it in here and have another part of the story because it's an incredible story. Oh, I can't yeah. wait to hear more. I guess for me, the thing that like not necessarily surprised me, but it was good to understand was the scale of the work that, they would like how absolutely minute some of these 
collisions would have to be. I guess yeah. I've never really yeah. processed yeah. that mm. before. I, I think part of the reason why we laugh and smile so much is because like this is simultaneously like super historic, but also has all the like humor of what real science actually is, which is like yeah. making mistakes and yeah. like asking your intern to do a thing and like uh and then they discover 12 elements and like yeah. uh, which is yeah. which is very, very cool. Guys, before we move on to our next topic, we have a very special Jumbotron message to read. What? Oh my goodness. That's so exciting. We haven't had one of these in so long. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited. Hi, Cynthia. This Jumbotron is for you. And it's from Erica. Erica says, I just wanted to shout out the best sister ever. Thank you for spending extra time with me when I needed it and trying my chickpea tofu. Sounds delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for suggesting LLE to listen to. I love that we can commiserate on our minds being constantly blown. (laughs) We don't usually say it, but you know, I love you. With an exclamation mark. That was very sweet. That's lovely. That's really lovely. I want some chickpea tofu. Thank you for choosing our podcast to make such a lovely message. If you want us to read your Jumbotron message, you can get one at letslearneverything.com slash Jumbotron. Thanks, both of y'all. Woo! Folks, we get it. Keeping up with an actual play podcast in this economy is a tough sell. That's why we have great news for you. The Adventure Zone is changing up its format. We're going to be doing some shorter seasons, more experimental stuff. There's never been a better time to get on board the zone. And if you're sick of listening to our voices, we get that too. So we're including some guests Uh, on this upcoming one. We've got Kate Welch and Gabe Hicks, who are incredible. And you want us to try out some new games? You got it. We've got the new Marvel Multiverse RPG. We're using that and with a really brilliant GM doing it. It's dad. And what he's saying is it's dad. Dad so is doing it. It's yeah. dad doing it. You can listen every Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's miscellaneous topic is Public Domain Day. Have either of you heard of this? No. no. I'm not sure I'm excited about this either. Oh, I Tom, think it will be. You're going to have to give me some convincing on this one. Caroline, there's going to be juicy legal drama Ooh, and there's oh. going to be a celebration of the arts. We don't you know do enough what? legal stuff, so this is exciting. That's because it's complicated. <laughs> uh, th- this took enough research that by the end of it, I actually got to correct a Wikipedia page on something. So, oh my God. so, so yeah, that, that's why we don't do it every, every episode. So uh, I have to say a lot of this amazing research into this topic comes from Jennifer Jenkins. Uh, she is the director of Duke's Center for the Study of the Public Domain. She has a great write-up. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, she's an all-star when it comes to this topic and also the celebration of this day. Uh, and as she put it, quote, On the first day of each year, Public Domain Day celebrates the moment when copyrights expire and books, oh, films, yeah. songs, and other creative works <gasps> enter the public domain. That's great. Oh, where they become... Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, now you see how this yeah. is exciting, right? Yeah, because this is this is caused a I yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited now. Uh she continues, works enter the public domain where they become, in Justice Brandeis's words, free as the heir to common use. Educators, students, artists, and fans can use them with neither permission nor payment. Online archives can digitize and make them fully available without the threat of lawsuits or licensing demands. Amazing. And while this is you know, mostly like a conceptual holiday. Yeah. Uh, there are some like actual events held around the world. 
Last year, archive.org held a public domain day remix contest where people submitted remixes of movies that were becoming public domain, and they held a screening party in San Francisco, which is very cute. Nice. Probably the biggest public domain drop from 2023 was the film Metropolis, uh, which Roger Ebert described as, quote, generally considered the first great science fiction film. Oh, wow. He attributes it to inspiring Blade Runner, mm -hmm. The Fifth Element, and even Batman's Gotham City to an extent. Nice. Oh, wow. But last year also included things like the phrase, ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. The song and phrase. I did not know that oh. that was even not in the public domain. Oh. Yep. And now we really all can scream it as much as we want. We can charge people to hear us sing it. Well, now that it's legal, I don't want to do it. I only did it for the thrill. <laughs> I, I only scream about ice cream as an anarchist. Yeah. You rebels. I, I only scream about ice cream for anti-capitalist purposes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but 2024's Public Domain Day is in just under a month's time. Ooh. And it may be one of the most important public domain days in a long while. Oh. Because entering the public domain next year will be an icon of one of the biggest copyright demons in the world next year entering the public domain is a little cartoon named steamboat willie oh, oh, oh mickey okay. mouse which is the first appearance of mickey mouse <gasps> which has been a long long time coming i was about to say disney has like an amazing way of keeping yeah, hold of yeah, yeah, copyright. Yeah. Oh, they I'm surprised they have managed you. to not keep this. Uh huh. That's why what happens next year will be interesting. So, and we'll get Ooh. into that. And by next year, do you mean in a month's time? In less than a month's time. In less than a month's time. It will be in the public domain. Mm. But there are caveats. There's weirdness. It's going to be interesting regardless. Whatever happens, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Uh, and so to get into that drama, we first have to learn some background. Uh, quickly, though, before we start, I do need to let everyone know. None of this is legal advice. So what do you guys think copyright is? <laughs> <laughs> Can you play that again? That was great. Oh, I should be playing it every second of this show. None of this is legal advice. I love the Lovely. harmonies in that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so what do you guys think copyright is? What is it? Um... Copyright. I, I feel like I should know this as so, an artist who used to sell art online, what copyright mm. actually is. I don't even feel like it has to be a legally binding document. It's just like when you create or own a piece of artwork, you automatically have copyright of something. That That is true. I only know copyright mostly through like Creative Commons stuff. So like yeah. Creative Commons is like an organization that helps you kind of use for educational purposes a lot of the time totally, access totally. to lots of different things and each thing has its own like type of copyright so yes. you might be able to use it for a specific reason you have to do it with proper accreditation yep. yeah yep, i don't yep, know yep. how that like ties back into copyright yeah exactly. so this sort of ties into this a little bit i also want to ask how old do you guys think the concept of copyright is Ooh. um oh no i think that's probably not that old less than 200 years mm -hmm. I'm thinking of patents, like when I hear yeah. feel about like when yeah. I learn about a lot of patents happening is like the like 1800s. I'm thinking of like what's his face that inventor that stole everyone's patents. Mm. Um, 
Oh, Edison? Edison. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, everyone in the Edison estate just turned over in their grave when he was just yeah. now referred to not as the light bulb guy, but the guy who stole everyone's <laughs> That rule. That's so good. That's like how we refer to Darwin as the guy who was wrong about, like, the Earth expanding. Yeah. Um, so... Just to get our terminology right, first off, obviously there's a, a bunch of legal words, but three that I sort of mix up all the time before I research this topic uh -huh. are trademarks, patents, and copyright. Right. Okay. So, so a trademark is the mark of a trade. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's is the name logo of a company that helps you differentiate it as a trade, like as a profession, like as a yeah. as a company. It can last indefinitely if it's renewed. So like the name Coca-Cola isn't going to enter the public domain uh, as long as it's still being used, right? Right. And then patents protect inventions. Uh, in the US, it expires in 20 years. And then copyright protects artistic, literary, or intellectually created works. Right. So you can't make a copy without getting a license or permission first, right? The creator has the right to make copies, copyright. The copying right. Okay. That's so simple. We've done so it effective. again. <laughs> well, but, it, but I mean, I will say it, it, in y'all's defense, the, the legal term copy has now become extremely broad, right? right. Like, like when this word was first created, the concept of recorded sound had not been invented yet. Oh, wow. Some people use the phrase derivative as something counting as a copy. Oh. You guys might have heard mm. the phrase derivative works versus something that's transformative. Yeah, also yeah, yeah. like where, you know, where do the lines blow with that? Like the right to make copies of that specific work. What if you do, and this is where things like, I imagine like parody and law come in. Like, yes, we're going to get into that. I okay. What recently watched a video and it was talking about the copyright of the smiley face. I saw, I think, we, was like it a TikTok? The, the, I think the we saw. One? Or was it a video essay? I watched a video essay by a crochet artist who was talking about how some crochet artists had gotten sued, I think, by a company yes. who was using the smiley face and they were trying to claim that they had the copyright for it because it was used in their logo or something along those lines. I might be using the word trademark there. Yeah. And then that can be tricky when it's it's unenforceable, right? Because it's like something as generic yeah. as that, like you can't. Uh, and and that that's a fortunate thing that like certain things are like too generic to trademark or to copyright. But but at the same time, th that's one of the 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 tricky things is that like legally you you may be right, but the question then becomes like, do you want to lawyer up to prove that right? Yeah. And that's why big companies can just like scare people off by just like right. with like a cease and desist. Not not that I'm saying that you should ignore a cease and desist, but like um, that does happen. To, to sum up all these words, um, the name Harry Potter is a trademark. Mm -hmm. Right. The story of the books of Harry Potter has a copyright, so you can't make a movie based off of it without permission. And J.K. Rowling's invention of a new kind of online transphobia is a patent she has. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and that's why you shouldn't be transphobic online, because she'll sue you. <laughs> but the idea of copyright is to protect creative ideas. And this obviously is super tricky to pin down in history when you think about it like that protecting creative ideas right there are mm. so many debatable accounts in the ancient world of this happening so many sources i found where i was like oh this is it and then i like looked deeper and i was like 
Eh, right no. it's like it's like there's like an old irish manuscript about people like fighting over the rights to copy a bible or something like that and then someone else was like that probably wasn't it and it, it's just oh wow but, right. but you can see where that can be but i will say uh most timelines of modern copyright do agree and th there's a great one from the association of research libraries their timeline points it all the way back to literally the invention of the printing press okay which was Something we all know. I can't believe you didn't have this number to have. 1600s, right? 1400s. Wow. Oh, wow. That's older than I thought. It, you know, it really goes far back. Even the Constitution of the United States actually talks at length about copyright. Oh. Like, who has the right to determine copyright? Which is why I like to just, like, see that phrase in yeah. the Constitution. And then back then, copyright extended a maximum of 28 years. Yeah, this is in America specifically, right? Yes, but I think it was a similar length in other countries. Of course, I, I apologize if any of this gets too US-centric, but mm. for the most part... Apology not accepted. Yeah. It's too late. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and again, I, I think we can all agree that art should be protected, right? Like, no one wants to have their work stolen. No, mm -hmm. not a good feeling, yeah. But over the years, this protection has also been weaponized and extended way past any actual good. Yeah. Right. If instead of art should be protected, I use the phrase defense of intellectual property, a few Caroline made a face. Uh, <laughs> a few stories probably come to your mind from recent recent news. Uh, and you might even be specifically thinking of stories from a certain mouse-eared company. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, their reputation precedes them. Uh actually before I say this, I should say. This is all parody. This is all <laughs> alleged. This is allegedly the reputation precedes them so much that there is a colloquial term known as the Mickey Mouse curve, which is when you hmm. graph the age of Mickey Mouse's copyright over time twice now, just as it was about to expire, the limit increased. <gasps> I can send you all the graphics. Oh yeah, my sure, goodness, sure. yeah. Uh -huh. You're they're literally suing you as, as we speak yeah. for making <laughs> that, that noise. Me. That wasn't me. They're listening. <laughs> copyright duration and yeah, the Mickey Mouse yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a stair step of increasing copyright length. Oh, I see. Oh, so I see what you're saying is that they, through whatever oh. means, maybe some kind of Lots legislation of lobbying. Yeah, pushing, legislation. lobbying. Yeah, they, they've managed to extend the time that copyrights last. Yes. Oh, interesting. They, they were already increasing before then, but Correct. the sets got, start to get more yeah. dramatic in extension and sooner when um, Disney comes into the picture. It lines up a little bit, you know, with exactly when Steamboat will, when, when it's about to expire, mm, that's when yeah. they make the push. There's this YouTuber called Defunct Land yeah. who covers a lot of Disney stuff. And um, he went into detail about how the reason why uh, Disney brings out new editions of yeah like especially like new vhs releases yeah. and dvd releases of like old classic disney films is part of that extending the copyright yeah. that evergreening so thing. it's not that it extends the copyright it's that the newer versions are copyrightable right the, the remasters the live action remakes uh -huh. because it's new it's a new copyright and their hope is that that becomes the definitive edition. That that you forget oh. about the older one that's in the public domain and you only ever care about the more recent version that they have a copyright for. It, it's similar, but with like a slight, slight nuance difference. Yeah. To be clear though, this isn't like just Disney pushing this, but at the same time, 
It's not not Disney, right? Like they let's aren't... not pretend like Disney aren't like one of the biggest companies yeah. in the entire world, yeah. which owns so many things, and especially you know? <laughs> in the media world. And and like you know, it's not just them, but at the same time, they aren't not paying lobbyists. Like that that it yeah. does happen. So I want to balance yeah the the hate because I don't want to be like conspiratorial that like every single thing is blah blah blah. But it's also like well the but the truth is that but they, they do are, pay yeah, It's so, not conspiratorial yeah. to address like that they are a massive player and influence the yes. field, right? Yeah. Anyway, because of Disney and others in the U.S., the U.K., and very recently Canada and many other countries, for something to be public domain. It now has to wait a minimum of 70 years and a maximum of 120. Yeah, I've heard wow. that number before. That's crazy. So, oh, But that also means it's, it's, expen it's extending beyond the lifespan of the person who created yeah. it, which I think is the craziest part uh -huh. of that. And this extension helps nobody except corporations. Uh, Jennifer mm -hmm. Jenkins points to a paper from 1998 that argued against the CTEA. That's the most recent uh, extension called the Copyright mm -hmm. Term Extension Act. And the paper reads, quote, it is highly unlikely that the economic benefits from copyright extension under the CTEA outweigh the costs. And then also, the CTEA reduces innovation by restricting the production of new creative works that make use of existing materials. Basically being like, Listen, it, 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 it doesn't help anyone. Yeah. It lets people rest on their laurels for decades instead of making new stuff. Mm. And it, it punishes people. And it prevents new works from being made that should be made that like are allowed to be derivative because enough time has passed. Now, you may be saying, oh, who wrote this? Like some hippy-dippy socialist? Well, Jenkins points out it was written by a group of 17 economists, including five Nobel laureates. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is... A solid no. opinion. Not the hippie yeah. dippies. Yep. Nope. Yeah. Certainly not. Uh, <laughs> I do. I do really like it when I can. I can have an opinion, and someone's like, "Why is that valid?" And I just go, "Yeah, well, five Nobel laureates. So you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, who I probably hate on every other reason do also." Yeah. Agree with me. yeah. <laughs> Another interesting point that Jenkins brings up is: is this extension also makes it harder for archivists to collect and distribute these works? Uh, which is especially a problem oh. with film when celluloid films are like literally destroying themselves over time. Uh-huh. Oh my God. And this great for, and especially if you think about like the Disney vault oh, where they keep all of yeah. these things mm -hmm. that they only like wheel out every now and then. Yeah. I think of like, I think what's that, do you know what that film is called? The really racist one they did, um, The Song of the South. I yes. Think yes. Song yes. of the yes. South. And I don't know if that's in copyright still, I would imagine so, is. but like, yeah. it's basically like, impossible to copy anyway or like you know archive because they keep it hidden that, yeah. and that's interesting using copyright to to hide something yeah, yeah. so you, you take everything away and then when it, the copyright eventually runs out it's gone anyway no one can find it wow it's yeah. fucked up so <laughs> oh my god i'm gonna get assassinated by disney aren't I? <laughs> this is it. yeah we all are <laughs> um but i think the most damning example of just how long this copyright length is isn't an opinion or a legal argument instead it's just to read this review of steamboat willie from 1928 so variety who was around back then wrote in 1928 quote not the first animated cartoon to be synchronized with sound effects but the first to attract favorable attention 
This one represents a high order of cartoon ingenuity cleverly combined with sound effects. <laughs> the union brought forth laughs galore. Giggles come so fast at the colony theater, they were stumbling over each other. How long were you practicing that accent for, Tom? I didn't. You I have didn't? Baby. I'm American, baby. <laughs> uh, this is my favorite line. It's a peach of a synchronization job all the way through. Oh. Bright, snappy, and fit the situation perfectly. Peach of a synchronization job. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing review for a start. Yeah. But I just, I also think, look, I know things were different back then and people hadn't been exposed to a lot. But the idea of like uproarious laughter <laughs> and like yeah. joy over Steamboat Willie, the mouse whistling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the mouse. They don't do that. <laughs> for me, it's like if the praise for your animation was holy shit, you actually got it to work. Like that, yeah. like that's what they're excited about. Like that, it needs to be in the public domain at this point. Now, of course, we've already have some tools against the mouse, right? Fair use allows commentary and criticism and the phrase transformative works, uh, which you might've uh -huh. heard before. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I've been, <laughs> I'm very deeply into what transformative means right now due to why am I? I'm so old to be following this, but the <gasps> online drama between Jax films and Sniper Wolf. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I can't believe how much I know about what transformative uh, means. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, it, it really is. It's part of our part of our online world so much. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you know, we've already we've already been able to make commentary and criticism about Mickey Mouse, which is great. Um, and this is also why your favorite four hour long YouTube video essays can like play clips and still exist. Mm. Ah. Uh, by the way, happy new H Bomber Guy video to all who celebrate. <laughs> and also fair use is actually usually fairer than what you see on YouTube oh. uh, because YouTube is just overly conservative and sides with big companies. Yeah. So yeah. that's why. And I, I've always wondered, like, this is why services, if you've ever seen a YouTube creator who like makes videos on Nebula also, they'll be like, on Nebula, we include like samples of all the music. And I've always have been like, why is that allowed? Oh. And the reason is because they are willing to bat for their creators as opposed to YouTube. That's such a good point. I never thought about right, that. Right, like on YouTube, the moment a big company copyright strikes someone, right? And it's like, that's not fair use. This is a blatant copy like YouTube will folds immediately, right? Like they're like, oh, of, of course, of course, sir. Yes, yes, it must be. We'll, we'll, we'll demonetize the video right away. Nebula, well, there's a great quote from uh, Nebula founder, Dave Wiskus. We're not sponsored by Nebula, but- But we should be, reach out to us, Nebula. <laughs> Dave Wiskus said in a Reddit comment, quote, our creators get copyright claims every day on YouTube. They appeal every one of them. They win every time. YouTube provides record labels with automated tools to troll creators and steal their revenue. Yeah. Nebula does not. Again, this is sort of like our understanding of fair use is, is even more like nebulous. Nebulous. Hey. Um, because of this weird internet world we live in. Um, yeah. But uh, this is also why we have things like fan fiction, especially if it's non-commercial. Um, and lots of like non-commercial art is fine. Shout out again to Archive of Our Own, my favorite Woo! website. Woo! Fair use also covers parody, which is why great things like a very Potter musical can exist. Although they do still run into issues when it comes to like tickets and mm. performance rights. It's a mess. But two webcomics I love are Mr. Boop and Scoob and Shag. They're bizarre comics. Uh, 
Mr. Boop especially, I would not recommend to everyone, but they each play with the sort of like endless sea of IP we live in in like a genuinely one-of-a-kind way. Mr. Boop is about the comic writer self-inserting himself marrying the character of Betty Boop. Right. Oh. <laughs> but, but then also starts sleeping with Bugs Bunny and like Peter Griffin. It just it just devolves and it's just like a whole like IP joke uh, of a thing. And like it's goofy, but like it really is it's silly art but like it is still art and i think it, i think that stuff is so fun yeah and so fair use is great could be better but it's great and it's how so many of at least my personal favorite pieces of media come about but public domain is one step further than all of that the wikipedia page for public domain has i think the most baller example which is just <laughs> if you go to the page it has an embedded movie file of the entire movie night of the living dead nice oh. it's an hour and 35 minute long video file in a wikipedia page like it's like a tiny it was like postage card stamp size but it's just like <laughs> and when i first saw that i was like oh like you can do that and i do think it says something that something like that feels so surprising and radical the fact that it feels that way says something about like how long this limit mm. is, right? That level, I'm I'm surprised a 70 year old movie can be played. It's like of, of course it should be played. Like it it becomes something more than being owned at that point. Yeah, it reminds me of like um if you get like a Kindle or something, you can download from like Amazon a bunch of free books. I think Dracula, for example. Mm, yeah, totally. And those kind of things. And when I first did that, I was like shocked. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm, I could just get free books. Like I can just read these things. Oh, yeah. It, it says how like IP pilled we are, right? That we're like, yeah. Oh, this feels naughty. Someone must own this. Yeah. Right. Some, I have to pay money for art, right? Yeah. Um, it's just easy to forget that as the legal director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation reminds us, the public domain is the rule. Copyright is the exception. Mm. Ah. So what does public domain really give us? There is a ton of public domain artworks that you can use that places like the Met and the National Gallery of Art have like libraries of like hundreds of thousands of works that they've ah. digitized also lately, which is cool. Uh, I'll, we'll definitely be throwing those links in the, in the show notes. But the, the public domain review is a journal that like also writes about this. But there's also a ton of stuff that we so often take for granted. For example, the entire works of Shakespeare. Oh, yeah, shit. That's, yeah, that's oh. another one I downloaded. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? So this means a lot of things. Like, first of all, it means that movies based on his works, like uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, can be made. Clueless. Clueless. And there's also, there's plenty of other like public domain stories that have become movies. They're, they're just like lesser known ones. So uh, for example, Cinderella, Snow White, <laughs> Sleeping Beauty, Beauty and the Beast, The Little lesser Mermaid, known. The Jungle Book, Alice in Wonderland, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Sorry, what was I, what was I saying? Sorry. Tom's not angry. Tom's <laughs> not angry that, at Like all. how are they allowed to take something basically remove something from the public domain yeah well so it's it's those versions of those things right so so like the original little mermaid story which is admittedly very dark where she's yeah. washed into sea foam uh-huh we can all read that yeah but then a red-haired mermaid girl is copyright so mm. but it's just like man you really did just take public domain works huh didn't you for all of those yeah yeah, that's crazy. Wow. Anyway, sorry, I was talking about Shakespeare. Uh, so <laughs> Shakespeare being public domain also means every school across the country can put on a Shakespeare show or a Charles Dickens oh, play. Oh, yes. 
without uh-huh. having to buy a license or worry about trying to like skirt it under the rug under legal trouble. As a drama kid, my first drama show was Great Expectations. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah we yeah. did We Will Rock You, which uh, does require a yeah. license and we just did it without <gasps> it. So We did, at school, we did Cinderella Rockefeller. So it wasn't traditional Cinderella. So I guess we got away with it. Oh, it's me. I was listening. No. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you may be thinking, you know, like Ella said, like, just do it, right? Sorry, could you play the this is not legal advice? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Now, of course. None of this is legal advice. But you may be thinking, like, (laughs) why, why can't I just, like, do it? What company is going to sue a school over copyright? Well, according to the New York Times. (gasps) A company that once forced a Florida daycare center to remove an unauthorized Minnie Mouse mural. Oh my and god. in 2006, quote, told a stonemason that carving Winnie the Pooh into a child's gravestone would violate its copyright. Oh, I remember that, that story. That's yeah. so fucked up. And so while Steamboat Willie is on the chopping block this year, Disney might not go down so easy, which is funny because... They've made films like Pinocchio, Aladdin, that's right, I had more, Uh Hercules, Mulan, (laughs) Tangle, The Princess and the Frog, Tarzan. Anyway. Deep breaths, Tom. This New York Times, this New York Times piece from Brooks Barnes has a lot of, it came out this year, so it's like prepped to like think about next year. It has a lot of great interviews from a lot of lawyers, uh, and I'll be quoting a lot. So lawyer Aaron Moss told the Times, quote, I'm seeing in Reddit forums and on Twitter where people, creative types, are getting excited about the possibilities that somehow it's going to be open season on Mickey. Which I love I love that phrasing. Just like run, run mouse. I can only imagine the kind of fucked up stuff people will do to Mickey if I mean they already gone. have, but now to be able to like really do it without impunity and to profit but now off. I can yeah. Sell it. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Is this what happened with Winnie the Pooh that like as soon as that went into public domain, that one fucked up Winnie the Pooh yep, movie that, came that's out. Exactly what yeah. Happened. yeah, that's exactly what happened. Oh, that was recently. Yes. Yeah, that Although was like this You'll year. notice it, it's the version of Winnie the Pooh that is in public domain does not wear a red shirt, I think, because it's the earliest version of Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so Disney might pull some of that shenanigans, right, about specifying that. So firstly, mm. it's just the black and white voiceless Steamboat Willie version of Mickey that's entering public domain. As the New York Times described it, quote, This non-speaking Mickey has a rat-like nose, rudimentary eyes, no pupils, and a long tail. He can be naughty. Oh, okay. Now, you you may be thinking, (laughs) what a truly pedantic description. But that's probably in part because we have seen this exact pedantry before. Have either of you heard about what happened with Enola Holmes in 2020? No. no. I know. I've, I've seen the film. It was fine. Well, you almost might not have gotten to. So in 2020, Netflix made a movie based off of a book from Nancy Springer about the younger sister of Sherlock Holmes named Enola Holmes. Mm. And the movie also features Sherlock Holmes, which is fine because he's in the public domain. Uh-huh. But the estate of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle noted that only... Some of the Sherlock Holmes stories were in public domain, basically the first half, and the latter ones were not yet. Okay. Uh, Uh By now, I think they all are. But at the time, Mm -hmm. it was was partway through. And the estates claimed that the Sherlock Holmes in these later series 
is an entirely different character and Netflix was using this oh. new Holmes. That's so, that is oh. pedantry. That yeah. is insane pedantry. Oh, Ella, you're going to love this. So what were the differences between the old Holmes and new Holmes? What, did he have like a oh bionic arm? Did he grow 10 feet? <laughs> did his eye colors change? He did a lot less snuff, probably. Ella, you're basically, so these are direct, <sighs> these are direct quotes from the lawyers of the Doyle estate. Quote, Holmes became warmer. He became capable of friendship. He could express emotion. <laughs> he began to respect women. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. They were really trying to like be wow. like, you're not going to use him because you're not going to want a character that can't respect women. And we know yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You guys only get access to a misogynist for now. This is another quote. Holmes and Watson embrace modern technologies and use them in detective work for the first time in copyrighted stories. What? What? Yep. Love that. Amazing. This is also great. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I forgot this one. Holmes changes from one who cares little for dogs to someone who has great interest in them. Shut oh, come up. on. What? That's ridiculous. Fortunately, this case was eventually thrown out, which is great. Oh, okay. Um, as Jennifer Jenkins puts it, quote, Generic traits such as warmth, empathy, respect, and canine enthusiasm are unprotectable ideas. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. so hopefully Disney will think twice about being too eager on this. But another thing, Columbia University IP lawyer, Professor Jane Ginsburg also believes they might try to extend the trademark of Mickey Mouse as copyright. Mm. So you may have noticed Steamboat Mickey showing up in a lot of logos and intros to Disney movies lately. Yeah. Some, oh, not, pe oh. <gasps> some people think this is a way to muddy the waters so that they can be like, he's actually become a trademark now. And so it's what more the than fuck? the copyright. <gasps> Fortunately, though, a Supreme Court justice once called this kind of behavior mutant copyright law so Ooh. hopefully it won't fly like to try to be yeah. like use a trademark as a copyright because that's the reason they're two different things and also when it comes to extending the deadline last minute like you know if they might try to push that in the next two three weeks yeah as uh professor paul goldstein told the new york times the last one is held the last extension is held in such bad bad odor. I don't think there was any option to try and extend further. Okay. So, nice. You know, the future is looking bright potentially for next year. And so I want to end talking about public domain wins because while half of public domain day is about advocating for policy changes, the other half is about joy and celebration hey. and enjoying things like pride and prejudice. But Mr. Darcy is a vape god. Uh, Have you all seen this <laughs> TikTok? No. <laughs> no. You know, Pride and Prejudice is my favorite book and I read it every year. So if you're going to do something bad to me, then I will not be acknowledging it. Well, fortunately, there aren't many changes to it. Uh, so some of you all might have seen this TikTok before. Um, there have been a number of these from joke author Dick Charles Heese, including Frankenstein, but the monster is allergic to gluten. <laughs> <laughs> the great gatsby but nick has scoliosis um and he's he's very open that there are barely any changes uh there's literally one new sentence every chapter <laughs> as the author said himself quote uh he said this about mr darcy's vape god he said while the vaping references are small the value they provide to the story are even smaller <laughs> 
I love that. That is genius, honestly. I think this is hilarious because it's, it's sort of like waiting for like, when is it going to happen in the book? Oh, uh, yeah. But also, it's a really fun acknowledgement that you can do weird shit like this, right? Like you see them, you're like, oh, what, what can I do with, with this mm. public domain stuff? Of course, there have been more inspired works such as The Gay Gatsby, uh, which addresses all of the homoerotic tension we all read from the original book. There's Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. That's another great example. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Another cool thing. Uh, next year, Florence Welsh of Florence and the Machine is apparently staging a Gatsby musical. Oh, cool. Oh, fun. Oh, I think that great. sounds fucking amazing. Yeah. Uh, and also... Dracula Daily was a huge hit last year oh, where yeah. they email out the entirety of Dracula in chronological order. Uh, it had almost a quarter million subscribers last year. And that more than Florence, because she could have afforded probably to buy the rights, but that clearly was such a small internet joke that like when it exploded, they didn't have to worry about like, oh, fuck, mm. I'm fucked. They're like, yeah. no, this is safe which is it's which is fun. cool and it lets you ex do those weird experiments more often which is cool and and this kind of like revival is actually to be expected as an opinion from the new york times read quote when senator hatch laments that george gershwin's rhapsody in blue will soon quote fall into the public domain he makes the public domain sound like a dark abyss where songs go never to be heard again in fact when a work enters the public domain it means the public can afford to use it freely to give it new currency and sometimes it's more than just a revival. Sometimes the public domain gives art a life it never had otherwise. For example, have either of you heard of a little movie called It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah. Yeah. Huh? So in 1946, the movie comes out and it ends up being $500,000 short of breaking even in theaters. <gasps> Not super wow. well received. But then 30 years later in 1974, it falls into the public domain early they think due to a clerical error where it just wasn't renewed oh. which shows how little they cared about it right yeah but because it does tv networks go oh shit a free movie let's play it around the holidays <gasps> and over the course of 20 years of playing this public domain movie it becomes the classic that it now is yeah years later the director of the movie frank capra told the wall street journal quote it's the damnedest thing i've ever seen <laughs> The film has a life of its own now, and I can look at it like I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I'm like a parent whose kid grows up to be president. I'm proud, but it's the kid who did the work. Yeah. I didn't even think of it as a Christmas story when I first ran across it. I just liked the idea. Aww. That's nice. That's sweet. And I love that framing of it as like letting a piece of art grow on its own in the public, even one that was thought to be forgotten. Unfortunately... The studios didn't see it that way. And in 1990, a ruling by the Supreme Court let no. owners of the story the movie was based on to retake copyright control of the movie. And it is now owned by NBC and Paramount. What the fuck? Oh, what? what the fuck? No. It entered the public domain. Why? Universally loved. Becomes a new thing. And then... But, but how does that work? Like, how is that allowed? It was, it was like a very back? specific loophole, but they were able to get ownership back and make it leave the public oh domain. Oh, my God. Wow. So the public domain fight is not over, but I hope to have shown that it's a fight worth fighting. Um, I am ex especially excited for next year's Mickey fight. It sounds like it will get interesting and messy Ooh, yeah. <laughs> uh, as lawyer aaron moss told the new york times this is a direct quote 
they won't be able to go after everyone. Battle lines will have to be drawn. Oh, oh my goodness. But it is also a joy worth celebrating. Uh, one of the first mentions of the concept of Public Domain Day comes from an email from Wallace McLean from 2004. And he says, you are free to make use of this heritage in any way you want by publishing, digitizing, compiling, translating, adapting, dramatizing, or treating the material in any other way. It's yours to enjoy and share with whomever, whenever, in whatever way you want. Yay. And I, I love that word, the word heritage here, because it celebrates the idea that like all art is built on other art and always has been. And to pair with that, this is another one of my favorite descriptions of public domain. Uh, it comes from Karen Temple, who was a former U.S. Register of Copyrights, who said in 2019, It's important to recognize that when a work enters the public domain, of course, it does not represent the death of copyright. Rather, it is part of copyright's life cycle, the next stage of life for that creative work. And I, I love thinking of public domain as, as a natural step in the creative process, right? Like, when you make a work of art, it inherently becomes something outside of you. And like, this is like that final process of it fully belonging to everyone else, right? Art is something that you, you take in all your life from public works and eventually something that you can give back to, right? It's like breathing in and out. And if, if public domain is a death, it is a natural death that nurtures a new generation of art to grow the good kind of death from like the better burials episode. Mm -hmm. And so I look forward to all the new art this year will bring, whether it be a book about how Mickey Mouse was a vape god or a musical by Florence Welsh or just a third grade musical, you know, whether you want to just like screen Metropolis at your library or just watch a movie on Wikipedia or make a collage of public domain art or turn something unknown into the next It's a Wonderful Life or maybe the next Frozen, or the Emperor's New Groove. That's right, there's still more. Treasure <laughs> Island, Treasure Planet. <laughs> and that's that. Lovely. Oh, amazing. That was so interesting, Tom. I really enjoyed that. Look forward to next year. Let's see if we can take Mickey down, finally, next year. Give him back to the people. Caroline, do you understand this maths homework? No, honestly, I'm absolutely lost in this class. I was going to ask Tom, actually. Uh, Tom? Uh, could you help us with this homework? We're supposed to yeah, factor hey, hey guys, these up? polynomials. Oh, you guys need help with that. Guys, guys, that's super easy. Oh, amazing. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I was worried. So all you want to do is pick a few of the over 35 chef-crafted meals every week. Uh, and let me double check. Yeah, so, so you can pick vegan, calorie smart, or protein plus meals. All of those should work for this problem. Yeah. Uh, what? Yeah, and also you guys should be done with this homework in no time because factor is fresh, never frozen. So it only takes two minutes to heat up. I just don't... Oh, I, I see. I don't know why our teacher didn't cover this, but now that I'm on the website, I see I can also turn this polynomial into over 55 add-ons like smoothies, grab-and-go snacks, and breakfast bites. No, guys, this literally makes no sense. What are you talking about? It's just so convenient. <laughs> just before this, I had a jalapeno and lime cheddar chicken. And right now, I'm having a strawberry banana smoothie. Ooh. And I just realized looking at the label, it has no added sugars and protein and dietary fiber. It's all the convenience, plus a bit of a pleasant surprise trying out a Factor meal. Okay, I see what's happening here. So you're thinking of Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. Oh, that that is what I'm looking at, huh? Yeah. 
Well, here's some math for you. If you head to factormeals.com slash learn50 and use code learn50, you can get 50% off. That's code learn50 at factormeals.com slash learn50 to get 50% off. Thanks, Tom. No problem. Oh, we're going to fail this class so badly. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm glad you said that because nobody says that. Can I just say thank you to you for such a thoughtful interview? Oh, my God. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Bullseye. Interviews with creators you love and creators you need to know. Listen to the Bullseye podcast only from NPR and Maximum Fun. It's Review Corner. This review comes from Swispiff. And they go, I'm just really happy. And then the body of the review goes, I'm just really happy you guys exist. And then the two hearts emoji. That is. Oh. That's it. Short, sweet. <laughs> lovely. Short, That's sweet, lovely. and lovely. You guys yeah. can, leave, you can leave a long review. You can leave just a little review to let us know you like the show. Uh, I love a little review. I really liked that. <laughs> it was very nice. I was like, oh, cute. Yeah. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And or then, you can um, send it via Carrier Pigeon. We do accept Do one. we have any plugs or shout outs? Oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> you said. I'll, I'll do a quick, oh, I will shout out. Um, you guys, when this episode drops, you should have just at least a little bit more time to submit questions for the Q&A episode. Ah. Oh, yes. Our yearly tradition. The next episode will be the Holland Days episode uh, where we'll get mm-hmm. a bunch of little, little fun facts from us and from friends of the show. Then after that will be the end of year Q&A episode, some your questions. Um, and then we will probably take our annual January break to oh, yeah. recuperate and uh, plan out the year before we start it off fresh. Lovely. So where can you submit Q&A questions, Tom? You can submit them at letslearneverything.com slash question. Or if you want to like discuss the questions more, you can submit them at our Discord. You can find the link on our website. Um, also on the Discord, let us know your favorite public domain works. Dig through the public domain archives. Let us know your favorite chemical element. Yeah. Which two elements would you smoosh together to make a new <laughs> yeah. element? Let us know. <laughs> I can't wait for someone to listen to this like two months from now when we've forgotten and they just get a message that's like beryllium and hydrogen. And I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait for a five-star review to be like, my submission is uranium and carbon. And I'm like, what? Why Why did they send this? Stop, I would love. <laughs> so today we learned that the story of making super heavy elements is long, longer than I could possibly even cover <laughs> in this episode, but full of interesting characters and high-speed impact events. <laughs> too fast, too furious. <laughs> And we learned that copyright law is messy and complicated and frustrating sometimes, but there is hope in public domain and very soon, hopefully, Public Domain Day. And you can join us all next time where we will learn about... Everything! Let's Learn Everything is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted and produced by Ella Hubber, Tom Lunn and Caroline Roper with editing and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lunn.
shout out again to Archive of Our Own, my favorite Woo! website. Let's see what pairings Mickey Mouse has on Archive of Our Own. Oh my Who God. are the top ships for Mickey I'm Mouse? Scared. Are you actually searching for that, Tom? Because I Should really do want to know. Do it. Can, oh, you, let's I do it. can do it faster than I can? I'm scared. Oh, that's so funny. Okay, so if you search under Mickey Mouse, the top ones do not have Mickey Mouse in the pairing because Mickey Mouse's most popular fandom is not from... Kingdom Hearts? It's Kingdom Hearts. Yes. Oh. Interesting. Huh. I'll skip this. They're mostly Kingdom Hearts one, but there are some that are actually Mickey Mouse related. Can you guess what they are? Mickey X Goofy X Donald. No. That's <laughs> where my brain went. It's not no. something really... Just like, Mickey It's Minnie. not Mickey and Minnie, is it? It's for, Yeah, it's Mickey and Minnie. Oh. And then it's like... And then it's Daisy and Donald. Okay. Uh, who's Daisy? Daisy Duck. She's is she the, the one with the girl pink Wow. Oh, Caroline, okay. some of us here stand with women, so... <laughs> <laughs> stand with corporations that fabricated women. <laughs> Maximum Fun. A worker-owned network of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.